Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to this edition of All Options Considered. I'm Tanvir Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg. On this episode, I'll be joined with Nancy Davis, founder of Quadratic Capital Management. For reference, this has been recorded on 18th of January, 2024. If you like what we're doing here at FIC Focus, please spread the word. That would be much appreciated and help us keep delivering great content to you. Nancy, great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. So the pricing of the easing cycle is a key theme for markets this year, the timing of which remains fluid. After the December Fed pivots, the markets have become very ambitious in the rate cut pricing, some of which has been pared back so far this year with a cut in March now being priced as a coin toss and a total of 140 basis points of cuts being priced by December. The magnitude of cuts priced for the Fed and the ECB for this year are nearly the same. The Fed pricing has a lead in terms of timing, but arguably it should be the other way around given the resilience of the US economy and relatively worse data coming out of Europe. But overall, it might end up that the pricing is too ambitious in terms of timing. Uh, what do you make of it, Nancy? Well, I definitely think everyone is talking about the rate cutting cycle, but I think some of the more interesting headlines that are happening, at least in the U.S., is around quantitative tightening and the balance sheet and potentially reducing the mortgage exposure that exists uh, on the Fed's balance sheet. And I think that's one thing, you know, I always try to emphasize to to people when I talk is that, you know, things like the the Bloomberg aggregate is a wonderful for fixed income index, but about a third of it is U.S. mortgages. And, you know, as you know, I, you know, U.S. mortgages are implicitly short volatility because U.S. homeowners have this unique, it's kind of unique around the world. I think there's, um, Denmark also has this, but outside the U.S. it doesn't exist. But in the United States, homeowners can prepay whenever they want. So homeowners are long the option and owners of mortgages are short options. And whenever you're short options, you're short ball. So I'm just trying to grab people, stand on my soapbox and say, look, especially in 2024, this might not be a great time to only be short volatility in your bond portfolio. <laughs> and you might want to think, you know, given so many different issues that are kind of idiosyncratic to the U.S., yeah, many investors are benchmarked to that ag index, which has that short vol exposure via the mortgage component and the so-called negative convexity behavior in mortgage securities on rates volatility as the higher for longer policy rates narrative has been replaced by the front loading of rate cut. We've seen this support to rates vol and we typically see that when the market transitions from a pause to the pricing of aggressive cuts, central banks and data have been pushing back somewhat on the rate cut euphoria. We saw US rates fall start the year moving higher and it has picked up again recently given the fluidity of the pricing of cuts. Implied fall can be directional to rates. If we have a rally in rates, it can move lower, but it's not all that matters. And the dispersion in economic forecast 
has helped support rates volatility. So a narrowing of those views is also important uh, to see that decline. Besides that, uh, we expect rates to be in a higher vol regime compared to pre-2022, given rates are much higher compared to when the Fed was close to the zero lower band. You're, you're speaking my love language, the normal versus log normal volatility. <laughs> We're definitely in a, in, and I think a lot of people will look at, you know, the data too. The data doesn't really go back very far for, you know, volatility and options are one and the same. You know, I know that's a very basic concept, but I think it's really important to say that you can have, you can look at realized vol, but the options market is where you see implied volatility. And it doesn't really go back to the last period of inflation or stagflation. The derivatives markets are not that old. Even things like the inflation protected bond markets around the world, you know, the U.S. Treasury only started issuing inflation protected bonds in the late 90s. So these are new markets. There's not a ton of data. And I think a lot of people are looking at, you know, various ways of looking at rate volatility and saying, oh, it's, you know, it's gone up. But we've also been in the most part a 30-year bond bull market. And now we're experiencing the daily swings are crazy. I mean, the, the market is, the realized vol that we're feeling is incredibly uh, high. And there's very little premium priced into the vol curves as we go further out, especially with so many unknowns about cuts, how many, when they're going to happen, if they're going to happen. The U.S. Treasury has to refinance just a massive amount of debt this year. We have the U.S. presidential election. We're not even really sure kind of who the candidates are going to be. So there are a lot of unknowns out there. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the market is very complacent that the Fed has tamed inflation and that it's not going to be a problem in the future. There are no no worries right now. And you see that in the vol markets. Vol markets right. are not concerned. Everything is fine. And that that's me, you know, you really have to be when everybody's fearful, you have to be greedy. And when everybody is greedy, which is right now, you have to be fearful and owning some things that are, you know, long ball, defensive, um, you know, kind of to prepare for the unexpected, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it all seems priced to perfection at the moment. And I agree with you regarding, you know, we're still in a world of high macroeconomic uncertainty, even though we have, you know, we have this long tail of COVID that is tapering off this year. Uh, it's still pretty uncertain out there. So in that context, what, what do you make of uh, the Fed put, the strike on the Fed put? You could argue it's moved higher given the disinflation that we're seeing, but however, we're still facing a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, and I think we have the complication of also being a presidential election year in the US. So that's also another, you know, the Fed tries not to be political, but I think the reality is, is there's a lot of pressure with the Treasury having to refinance so much of their debt. And if the rate cuts are pushed out further, I think that will actually steepen the curve because the market will start to price in more cuts faster. So it's uh, that's my theory. Obviously, it's really hard to predict, uh, you know, what's going to happen in the future. But I could really see a scenario where the Fed doesn't cut. You know, you know, we we had a big reversal with the expectations for cuts in March, but I could see that continuing, but the curve actually steepening off of the back of that because there should be more more term premium and it's still that negative term premium. 
if we look at the equity market, S&P vol is effectively back to pre-COVID levels. Yes, that decline is a function of the robust economy, the focus now having turned to the easing cycle. You know, we saw last year where VIX option volumes broke that 2017 record when VIX was printing single digits, and a lot of it was driven by call option demands. Uh, so as we're talking about the VIX and call options, we're talking about tail protection options, essentially. And that demand has been helped by the re-risking in the market that we saw after the Fed pivot as realized vol has fallen. And it, it's led to pricing in terms of the downside being at some points uh, recently pretty much as good as it gets. Yeah, there are definitely some opportunities out there in the vol markets um, because vol has fallen quite substantially. I think also just going into the end of 2023, it was sort of even going back to the bond markets, you know, October was terrible. And then November and December was, you know, party on, <laughs> everything's making money. And so I think a lot of people do sell volatility as carry. Um, that's become very popular with a lot of retail products. And I think, you know, there's no, you know, when you sell an option, the most you can ever make is the premium that you receive. And you're, even if it's covered, you're basically selling away the upside. So I think it, it's kind of, there's all this money that's flowed into these, you know, income strategies. And I think it's a time to really rethink those strategies when you have policy rates, you know, where they are now, like whether you think the policy rate is going to be five and a quarter or three and a quarter, I'm just taking a wide range. It really has to make you reset some of these income generating strategies that are from you know, from the era of negative or zero interest rates. So I do think vol is attractive across pretty much all asset classes. And that's a neat thing about options. So you mentioned uh, vol being low across all asset classes and there's opportunities there. In terms of FX, it remains very low given the lack of trend and conviction in the spot markets. There is an array of risks that it faces this year that you've mentioned. But, you know, if we see continued low investor conviction in the spot market, the chances of a higher vol regime uh, decreases. We really need to see a trend in the dollar and with trends you typically get overshoots. And if you had a choice of, you know, you've got your spot market, your forwards or your options, given where options are currently priced, you probably should be considering options. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, especially if you're taking directional views, you can take the same directional views, but have you know, have that positive convexity payoff to really, you know, say if it's a FX hedge, like why not have it, you know, you can allocate less capital, less risk, and the vol markets are so low across asset classes that you're, you know, obviously you have rate differential uh, expectations, but you have that in forward space too. So it seems like kind of a no brainer to me, but I think the reality is most people have been rewarded for not hedging for a really, really long time, like really since the financial crisis. And so people, it's almost like a bad word. You would think people would say, oh, I want to hedge, you know, our exposure. But what I've learned is people just want returns. And um, it's, uh, I think for, for many investors, you can really use the options market in a very, very convex way. But it's a great time to be buying options, not selling options. And I guess my my point is, is that most strategies, whether they're systematic, CTAs, uh, trend following, 
you know, kind of anything that looks at the past is a vol seller. And, you know, so many, so many investors have this embedded short volatility, whether it's from the Bloomberg Ag Index being short, uh, you know, fixed income vol, or if it's just from their credit exposure, um, even, even things like private credit strategies, they're still companies, right? You're still, you know, lending money, hoping to get repaid, hoping there's revenue that cover expenses and hopefully some profit. It's not not a magic unicorn and you have to be really careful that you don't have the same beta in your portfolio you know if it's corporate beta and we do have you know something bad happen you know you want to have things that don't all go up together and don't all go down together that's the whole point of portfolio diversification so you mentioned japan earlier the curve the rates curve in japan is pricing um, an exit from negative interest rate policy, uh, but dollar yen is, you know, remains a very, very tricky pair to trade. We saw it move to 140 following the Fed pivot. There's a high correlation with U.S. rates. It's come back up to nearly 150. You know, the carry being um, short dollar yen is very punitive, and you know, buying put options is very costly. Whereas buying calls, the high carry and low vol is actually positive. Uh, for, for buying calls or any topside related exposure. You know, it needs really for the Bank of Japan to deliver what's priced in terms of rates, as well as the Fed to deliver on the cut side to see it much lower. And if both of those things don't happen, we could end up just stuck here or even move higher. It's, it's one of those, you know, trades that is very punishing as well. So what do yes, you make I of it? I think it's called the, the widow maker. <laughs> it's, you know, people, it's always, you know, always very tempting because the vault is so low there and there is so much, I would say, sort of tail potential. But the reality is it's been very, very hard to make money, because, especially with FX, because you're kind of taking, you know, an RV, you know, you need one thing to move and another, and you're taking an interest rate differential view and a timing view. So it's, I think it's, it's sort of a trap in a way to have, you know, although the vol looks low, I mean, I would say better to express that theme just in U.S. rates, because that's so tied to Japan, because Japan is such a huge owner of treasuries along with China. So I think, you know, that way, at least you have one thing that you have to get directionally right, whereas using the FX, it's really two currencies two different interest rate differentials. And it's it's tricky too, because their yield curve is so positive. Um, you know, positive 60 versus negative 40 in the US. I'm like, buy the cheap one. You know, I mess around. Like don't buy, don't buy the expensive one. And uh, but I do think Japan's interesting just as a data point with inflation, because you know, whether you believe these CPI indices or not, you know, that's a whole nother, a whole nother podcast is you know, the governments are calculating these indices, but 2.8 was the last, you know, CPI in Japan. And that's, you know, that's a thing, right? You know, inflation around the world has fallen. Um, you know, I think a lot of people believe that China is exporting deflation now to the rest of the world, but that has been priced in to these break-even curves. And, you know, most markets are not expecting higher inflation in the future. And that 
going back to the, you know, kind of when everyone's complacent, it's usually a great time to be a contrarian and say, like, look, what if, what if the Fed is cutting rates too early? What if inflation hasn't been squashed? And what if it causes inflation in the future? It just seems like a good opportunity for investors to be, be prepared for the unexpected. And I think that's one thing that the pandemic, you know, if we just you know, quick flip through the last four years, three years, you know, 2020 was obviously a huge surprise. 2021 was the even bigger surprise with all the market rally. 22, everything went down together. 23, everything went up together. And financial assets for the most part are pretty expensive. You know, it's not whether you're looking at credit spreads or equities um, or the dollar, whereas the U.S. yield curve, this is why I love eyeballs so much because I'm like, what else can you buy in the financial market that it's trading at valuation levels from around the 80s? You know, there's there's one of the cheapest assets out there. Um, and then there's so many different ways for it to potentially work that it just seems like a, a no-brainer. That was great, Nancy. Thanks for joining yeah. us on this episode of All Options Considered. It was really fun. I feel like we took a trip around the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Good to see you. Good to see you. Bye. Bye.